Hey everybody, welcome to another Commission Podcast. Uh, this one is for the 1944 film noir movie Laura, which is commissioned to us by one Sarah Sugas. And we appreciate your support, Sarah, and we appreciate the commission. Uh, this movie was stars uh, Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, and Clifton Webb, and a very young but still very vocally, vocally recognizable Vincent Price. Did you, did you, you I mean, they, they had the credits for the name, but did you actually get that this is Vincent Price in the uh, movie? No. Uh, interesting, because I picked out, a, I smoked his voice right away. Like, I, 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 uh, I couldn't believe how fucking tall Vincent Price is. I looked it up, and he's six foot four. He, he plays he, the, the, the love interest of Laura, right? Yeah, the kind of, the okay. Kentucky dandy. Okay, yeah, now that you say it, yes. Okay, got it. Uh, like he's got that kind of hint. Like he's not full on horror show version. Vincent Price. He's still leading a man, Vincent Price. But it's it's definitely all there. Uh, and it's based on a 1943 novel, Laura, by Vera Cosperi, which I thought is interesting. Like every time you go back to these like movies that are based on books, like you think of like as old books, but like they were they had contemporary classics just like we do. Like this is yeah. this is essentially Gone Girl in 1944. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. hit book, uh, bestseller, uh, captured the public's imagination. Here's the movie version of it. Uh, did this movie capture your imagination, Jim? What did you think of it? Uh, not completely. I mean, I notoriously don't care much for the filmmaking style of these these early films um so it's a really big hurdle to get over personally with me if if you're asking me to watch like a 1940s movie right or really really anything before the era of like early 70s like so say godfather i think it's godfather like yeah 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 it pretty much is um everything before godfather is just bullshit (laughs) For the most part, yeah, in my mind. Uh, uh-huh. So it's a, it's a big hurdle for me to actually come away from a movie impressed that was made in the 40s, which I will say I didn't come away like thoroughly impressed with this movie. I, it didn't bore me to tears either. I think it it has what what I would call flaws looking back from a 2018 perspective, but mm. I, I don't have enough historical context. I'm not well-versed enough in these old movies to tell you whether or not this movie holds up for its time unfortunately um it's interesting because i've got like a slightly different experience uh, than you because i um like i'm gonna i'm gonna compare this movie a lot to maltese falcon which is kind of like the first cinematic uh film noir movie starring humphrey bogart um and i was amazed at how much more modern it felt than maltese falcon and Hmm. to, to the extent that i was thinking like maybe maltese falcon was like made in 36 or 37 but I was shocked to find that it was actually released in 1940. It's only four years junior to this, but like the quant, like and and you can see in Maltese uh, Maltese Falcon where there's some there's some fairly modern flourishes, um, especially in the dialogue. But the acting is still pretty stagey, and oh my god, the editing! The editing is like I've, I've said it. I've, I've I've used this analogy before, but like in Maltese Falcon, you'll see Sam Spade take a phone call, uh, hear the conversation, tell his secretary, "All right, I'm going down to the police station." Dollface, go over to the ho- cat, the the coat rack, put on his coat, put on his hat, 
go through the door, other side, out the door, go to the elevator. Elevator opens up in the lobby, walks across the lobby, walks across the hotel th- or the you know the the thing to his car, gets in his car. Like in a modern movie, he would just like they'd fade they'd fade cut from the phone call right to him talking to the detectives down at the police station. Yeah. But like it's this weird thing of like, well, we got you know can't lose the audience, and that uh, m- most of the editing I saw in this movie. Uh, doesn't show any signs of that. But I was doing some research, and, like, this was... It seemed like this was a real hotbed of, like, modern movie pioneering techniques. Like, Alfred Hitchcock hmm. had just storyboarded the first film in 1940. Okay. So, like, the idea that you would actually storyboard to account for things you could do on a camera that you couldn't do and like, a stage play is a very new idea, and that's something that, the, like, the Maltese Falcon director cobbled... And it's something that the the director and producer of Laura uh, cobbled together, too. And I felt like the blocking and the editing and the acting was much more natural in this film. But the dialogue, unfortunately, uh, I felt like the lead the lead detective, the McPherson character, is a pale shadow of Humphrey Bogart, number one. (laughs) Even Humphrey Bogart stilted and not quite got the acting thing figured out. Uh And I don't think the dialogue is nearly as good. Hmm. Like... There is still there is some there is some really world class crackling dialogue in Maltese Falcon that I don't know like there's some stuff like obviously the thing like like that um, uh, Lidecker Waldo Lidecker's saying is supposed to be good he's supposed <laughs> to be like urbane and cultured and mannered and and witty uh-huh. but it doesn't quite translate in my in my mind no I'm with you most of what he's saying seems uh, frightening to me you know a, mm-hmm. a man all about himself and his ego and manipulating this woman uh 95% of the things he say he says in this movie turn me off mhm yeah he's a very odd fellow because yeah. i mean scene 1 with him tells you that he's an odd fellow right he's taking a fucking meeting with a cop in his bathtub right in and his then... bathtub what i mean the manners it takes to do that are non-existent and it's also just weird <laughs> Yeah, and it's he gives him a full spread of Lidecker's Waldo, and he gets up, and uh-huh. there's like a weird chemistry to that scene because this is so like this is 44, but I think you're supposed to understand that Waldo Lidecker is like a Capote type that's not entirely st- straight. He might be like I, <laughs> okay. I mean I, I I'm trying to be sensitive about this, but like I think he's portrayed as a gay stereotype in an era where you couldn't just say this guy's gay. Huh. Okay. And. Which and and the way he was fascinated with Laura was with her breeding and her like like she was his living doll that he could yeah. like put all of his hopes and fears and 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 stuff onto. Um, it's just a very it's just a very odd relationship, um, mm-hmm. but it's never felt sexual, which makes it, you know, kind of I I don't know kind of odd, the way he fixated on her. Yeah, I agree. Everything he was doing in this movie felt. Very strange, but there's also a lot of like of the a lot of these characters. Like, how do you you know these are all wealthy socialite type characters? Like Vincent Price, is, you're supposed to understand, is kind of like new money guy from Kentucky that doesn't have much breeding or name, and he's trying to like cobble on to this these these other wealthy women. And there's a whole lot of things that are understated at the beginning of this movie because of the society's taste and sexuality that I found confusing, but I felt like maybe audiences contemporary would just know like the fact that 
I didn't get that Vincent Price was essentially this wealthy older woman's gigolo until like the third act when it's like, oh, oh, okay. oh okay, I understand the dynamic and why this is sketchy now. I thought that she was like, um, uh, what's that guy from like uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice? It's like that's just like his rich relative or something that right. he was – you know, getting away from Kentucky to do boarding or finishing school or whatever. Like, I had no idea there was a romantic side of that relationship. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's definitely romantic. I picked up on that pretty early. And I think the the thing with uh, Vincent Price's character is that he is very down on his luck. Like, he lost all of his money or something. Oh, And now okay. he's, he's, you know, in, in the eyes of Waldo, he's, you know trying to capture the wealth of Laura, you know, and right. and essentially all of the work that Waldo has done to make her this star and this very wealthy person in his own eyes, right? Because he, he would give himself all the credit for making Laura who she is. Right. Uh, and so he sees that as this guy trying essentially to latch on to him mm-hmm. and to, to find his wealth, find his way back to wealth through Waldo, which is strange and yeah. gross. <laughs> Before we get too much further, as I mentioned, this uh, podcast was commissioned by Sarah Sugas, uh, and she has a couple of comments that we want to get to. She says, I guess my main takeaway from this movie is how creepy I found the main detective falling in love with Laura's picture. <laughs> it was very creepy and not healthy at all. Then he's just all over real Laura and so possessive of her, and I could just never get behind them together, which is why I was glad that the movie ends, from what I remember, without them being confirmed to be together, so I'm going to assume that they weren't. Uh, hmm. I don't it's, know. Like, it's it's certainly not like they're leaving for the honeymoon or anything like that. Right. And I agree with how creepy it all feels. It does feel like, oh, my God, when he's in her house by himself and he's looking around, I'm like, ah, yeah, this is just a stalker. This is not a detective doing his job. This is a man creeping. Right, right. It's like just like if he did, like it had been too much for 1940s, but like <laughs> if he picked up her panties and started sniffing it, that's oh, kind of that's the 1940s feel I was getting with that scene. Yeah. Um, she continues. On the other hand, I did love her mentor because he was so witty and fun, even though his possessive entitlement was worse. Man, he literally killed someone and tried to kill another person twice. He kind of stole the show for me, though. I couldn't figure out why the detective let him hang out in his investigation. <laughs> Uh, we're, we'll talk more about this gentleman, but mm-hmm. yes, he does does pretty much steal the, the show and the scenes that he's in. Uh, Sarah continues, I'm constantly surprised with how strong and independent I find women in 1940s movies are. I don't know if it's because I'm expecting so little from them, given that it's the 1940s that anything blows me away. Like how excited whenever Nigel Bruce Watson correctly uses a four-syllable word because the bar is just not that high. Or because the woman characters, while still being beholden to their society did get to be strong and independent in a lot of ways. I did love Laura as a character, except for one part. Her housekeeper, who absolutely loves her and was shattered by her death, discovers that she's alive and is so overwhelmed and breaking down, and Laura just casually tells her to finish breakfast and stop crying. <laughs> like, she is normally way more caring than that. And I think maybe it's a class thing. Uh, huh. So, yeah, I mean, the housekeeper, I don't I don't think we... Uh, I, I didn't have on her notes, on my notes, to make her a... A, a topic of discussion, mm. but she, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm with Laura. She's a little bit out there. Yeah, sure. And that was like, it is probably a class thing because like, I know this is like in Downton Abbey a lot, like very strong emotion is delivered with a, a with a firm, uh, with a stiff upper lip. 
and a glance a glance away from the subject and you mm. know like the slightest misting of eyes before those are locked behind iron curtains like and i feel like american upper class is largely like reflected version of what they think the british aristocracy is Sure. I mean, less than 200 years removed. How do you even tell the difference? <laughs> right. But with a slight inferior inferiority complex, because no matter what, we're the new country and we're the new money and like it will never, uh -huh. ma you know, we'll never we'll never actually get real castles and shit, you know. But like, yeah, that that all makes sense. Like that rigid emotional control and that kind of those affectations would 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 play into that. Um, so like I, I talked about, like the fact that uh this uh dana andrews guy who plays the detective mcpearson uh unfortunately is not humphrey bogart but like he is, is like the center to everything like all these other colorful characters kind of dance around because say what you will about uh, clifton webb's performances this lidecker is it's extremely interesting and you know noteworthy and it kind of like bare, like there's there's like big broad performances in the uh a Maltese Falcon, like there's that 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 gangster guy that kind of kind of talks like this, boss, yeah, and oh and like that's like a larger than life, but like uh, at no time um, do you ever think Sam Spade is getting overshadowed by these bozos. Like like there's all mm. these colorful characters, but Sam is not exactly colorful, but he's like managing the whole thing. Where this detective feels like he kind of gets lost in the background when Vincent Price is sparring with this flamboyant, you know camp character like mm -hmm. you just like forget that he's even there um so and i felt like that like this guy like film noir needs a kind of a sturdy cooler dude in the middle of it and they they tried to i got I kind of excited because they talk about like this guy's been in a shootout with a gangster and he's like a straight arrow type um you know like uh he's he's been shot up and he's scarred and he's wounded i'm like oh there's probably gonna be some like some badass stuff in the end not really not really. There's a gunfight, but it's a very perfunctory and staged one. Yeah. Um, but I wish, I wish the co I wish the star had had a little bit more magnetism. Um, yeah, I could see that. I, I thought, you know, for the the actor they were working with, they did a pretty good job of of making him kind of the anchor of it. I did always feel like he was the center, and everything was kind of revolving around him. Um, but I. I it's interesting too because that character seems to have some kind of love interest with Laura as well. There's a scene yeah, where Lightecker comes yeah, out of nowhere, right? He's at one point it had me questioning whether he was actually a cop or just posing as a cop, and he's some obsessed fan of Laura's, right? Like he goes into her house, he starts like rifling through things, and I mean maybe that's the job of the detective. Maybe he should be there doing that, but also it felt a little indulgent. He's feeling uh, her personally, and when he starts smelling her perfume, yeah, yeah, it felt pretty gross. And then Lidecker, I think, points it out. Right, Waldo comes in and he says, "Oh, right. you're just uh, some obsessed fan or whatever." And yeah, I, I started to question, like, what what is this character really? Is he a detective? Or and by the end, you know, he is a detective, but you know, I, I do also feel that. like it was a little weird. <laughs> I never thought that, but you're right. Like a staple of a film noir scene is going down to the station and like sweating somebody or being sweated. Which I guess there was that one scene where he did take her down, like Laura down and like put the, the why do they always shine the light at people? I, I, I don't know. Like, 
Like, is that was that the because uh, because I've always heard that the, what they did is like they take a phone book and beat you with it, you know, or like oh. that's what throwing the book at you was is like not every charge, but like literally taking, you know, uh, and because you wouldn't hit a victim with your, you wouldn't hit a perpetrator, a perp with your fists. That's uncivilized. But you beat the shit out of him with a phone book. Like, was that okay. just like the genteel 40s law and order way of being like, oh, this is the interrogation of cop. It's like, hey, shine the light of justice on you cockroach and you sing. Right. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, it's like there's nothing that really inherently identifies him as a police officer until the rest of his squad shows up uh, yeah. later on. He's not in uniform. He's a detective. That's the other kind of violation of film noir. It's like I always feel like you have to be a private dick uh-huh. in, in, in those things. You have to have like that uneasy half of you in the, uh, is in the underworld, half of you is in the uh, the overworld whatever the fuck you'd call it yeah this is more um, like dick the, dick tracy was dick tracy an actual cop that's a good question is dick tracy film noir or is he just a comic book character uh a little of both i think yeah a little of both yeah um but yeah that's the i i can see what you mean about like him be like like thinking that you there's a there's a plot twist coming because <laughs> right. the thing the film does do effectively is keep the plot twist coming like yeah i cycled rapidly throughout the film through for for the like six primary and anta- like like potential antagonists and kind of did it repeatedly because um the more the more they reveal the more it's like okay well maybe it's this uh, rich heiress who's jealous of all the attention that uh, sheldon's getting or, or shelby's getting or maybe it's the this guy who's upset clearly obsessed with Laura. or like I, like it's early in the third act i started to suspect laura herself uh-huh which, spoilers for all this movie, if you hadn't figured out already, but, like, it was kind of mine. I did like the scene where Laura just comes back, has no idea that people think that she's been killed. <laughs> well, they, they did a weird camera trick, I think, to show, like, the passing of time, but I took it as maybe this was a dream sequence. Same here. And yep. so Laura walks in, and I'm like, well, is the cop dreaming or not? And eventually, Especially... like, 20 minutes passes, and you're like, okay, this can't be a fucking dream. It's right, too long right, of a right. sequence. Right. Especially since, like, he had been drinking, he's been re- rifling through all of her personal stuff, he falls yeah. asleep under this giant picture of her. It, like, it does, like, it, other than going the movie's doing everything it could to tell you that this is potentially a fantasy sequence or, you know. I also really enjoyed everyone's reaction like uh her uh housekeeper Betsy Bessie just just screaming um uh Lidecker fainting flat, f- flat on his face in shock uh-huh. um which now cuz like you know I've only seen this movie once um that seems an odd reaction because he knows or wait I guess he, he thinks didn't know he that killed he her didn't kill Laura yeah he thinks he killed her cuz it was dark Person Which, took the, the her her uh, model friend takes a step into the house and he's blaster in a face with both shotgun blasts. And in 1944, <laughs> apparently, if you didn't have a face, forensic science was helpless to identify you. I guess so. Yeah, but I, I guess if she's so, they're both white girls. Uh, they're both like beautiful. One's they're, had her face blasted off. One face, but but they're both also close enough in stature that they can borrow each other's clothes. So uh-huh. maybe. Maybe. That is not. They don't have what they can't do a blood tests. They don't have fingerprints on them. Maybe. No, I was prepared to call bullshit on this thing of like identical body swapping uh-huh. uh, until they until they revealed and maybe they revealed this earlier, but that she was shot in the face. And I was right. like, okay, With a shotgun, shotgun blast from close range in the face. You're not going to be able to identify that 
person no. by their face. So no, 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 no. Uh, can we go real quick back to like this idea of keeping you guessing the whole movie? Because I do mm-hmm. feel like that's one of the things that sort of put me off this movie is that they use a lot of red herrings in this movie, just like a ton of them. And it seems like maybe that era of film relied more heavily on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe today, when I see a really good mystery today, I see the subtlety of the clues. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're very particular about what information they reveal and when they reveal it. This movie seemed like it was just throwing everything at you, you know? And to me, that's less satisfying, I guess, than feeling clever like, oh, I picked on the, the subtle hint that they were giving me. Not like, well, they slapped me in the face with a red herring, so how am I even supposed to find my footing here? Uh, that, that felt a little bit uh, slipshod to me. Right. Well, especially with 70 years of movie-going experience, like, you know, the fact that this is a brand-new genre... Like mm-hmm. I kind of give them a little bit of plas- uh, 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 pass on the plotting just because I don't think they fully... And, you know, there's, like, just some stupid shit. Like, the fact that this guy stashed a n- murder weapon on premise mm-hmm. in this secret container of the, like, the, the clock, like, that, I think, was supposed to be for its day a mind-blowing reveal. But to my 2018 eyes, just looks, like, ridiculous. Like, why? Who the right. fuck would ever do that? And then this guy happens to carry two shotgun shells in his coat pocket so that he can reload and blast the real Laura in the face? Like, uh-huh. come on, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, but there is a couple of things like that that I thought were the, the outer workings of the plot were kind of silly. And there's some of that even in the Maltese Falcon. It's just the Maltese Falcon managed to be a little bit more entertaining. I'll tell you another thing that bothers me. Hmm. Uh, they really built up this lore to be a hell of a, bro- uh, of a broad, of a dame, uh, yep. of a skirt. Like, like she's like Peggy Olsen 30 years before Mad Men. Right. She's an ad executive that she's already like super accomplished. But when we meet her, I can't decide whether we're supposed to understand that she is a very bright young woman who sees this this Lidecker character as the self-important kind of dandy that he is and decides to play into his lack of respect for women just in general and play the like kind of like oh i get i'm just a poor little girl sitting here by my ad agency and i knew they wouldn't work and but i thought like she's playing all this like that didn't strike me as uh an oppressive hard-charging super successful young ad executive yeah i think there there's definitely a game that the two are playing and i think laura starts it you know i don't i don't actually like whether or not the company sent her there to to woo Waldo is, mm-hmm. I think, immaterial. It's like, did and I actually think it works better if they didn't send her right because she's taking the initiative. She's, she's the going initiative out there, and, right, right, really taking charge of her career, which I think is awesome. Uh, and then I do think she correctly reads this guy and she manipulates him into accepting this whatever ad kind of contract thing she's doing, yeah, um, or the endorsement. Uh, of their pins yeah and i think somewhere along the way you know waldo begins to manipulate her right and and try and trap her into this relationship and i think laura is both aware of that and also resistant to it but also somehow susceptible to it like Hmm. she gets drawn into this game even though i don't think she wants to be and i think she's aware of the game they're playing okay so let me see if i echo this back 
I, I kind of because that's where I was trying to find out a way. It's like, OK, she went here under her own steam to try to land this big client mm-hmm. and she correctly identifies. A, she correct, so that shows her gumption. But she's still up and coming. Like, she hasn't yeah. established herself. This is her taking a flyer. She identifies that the tack to take with this guy is to play kind of like a little bit of a damsel in distress or like, mm-hmm. oh, you know better than me. And then this guy essentially makes her, her career with his column. Mm-hmm. And not just a column, like, he dresses her. He teaches her about posture and, like, all this other stuff. Like, he... He, fa- he he constructs her image from from nothing. All she is is a pretty face that he's... That's the other thing, I guess, is, like, they didn't sell me of what... What is the thing that attracted to him, to her, in the first place? Was it just her? Because mm. the thing is, is this uh, uh, Jean uh, Tierney is a knockout. She's, like, uh, beautiful by modern standards. Like, she's just yeah. stunningly gorgeous, but there's not... There's not, like, any... Audrey Hepburn there there's no like like I didn't feel like there's any like steel or fire underneath the surface the way you do some of these you know larger than life female characters in the 40s and I felt like Mm -hmm. they were selling me a a person like that and I was getting a like essentially a pretty face that Lidecker has made into his own preferred image which was not as exciting I guess as Laura the young spitfire that I was kind of sold on yeah but it does seem like it's that. consistent with the plot and mm-hmm. what they were telling us because Lidecker's an unreliable narrator and he's saying what he thinks about her and what he thinks, like, w- I mean, I guess you understand that, like, what he thinks about Laura is a little bit about what he thinks about himself. Yeah. You know, Laura's beautiful and she has impeccable taste because he's beautiful and he has impeccable taste and uh-huh. he's trained her, so why would she have anything anything other than than that? Yeah, and I think the assessment that, you know, she's his doll or his possession is the most accurate one I could come up with, right? It's not even, right. like you said earlier, romantic. It's, it's you know, he has created this thing, and it's his, and if anybody comes along and threatens his supreme control over it, he becomes very violent, you know? Yeah, he like, and he, he ran people off. Like, he destroyed people's yeah. career with his, with his writing position for the New York newspaper or whatever influential rag he's writing for. Um, that's the other thing that goes, going back to my criticism of the central character, Laura, is, like, she felt very passive. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I don't love this guy. Oh, I guess I love him. Oh, I guess I'll, you know, go against the cops' orders because I want this. I don't want this guy to go to prison oh, I love you, no, I don't love, like, it's like, she seemed like she was very wishy-washy and went, like, kind of with the whims of the plot a little bit more than I was expecting. Like, I still couldn't tell you, does she really love McPherson, or is she scared, and he could protect her and get her out of the sticky situation, so she leads him on? Right. It's a fair question, because she comes back from her retreat, and I thought, okay, she's got her mind made up, and then the very next day, she flip-flops again, and and then I think they make that so that, like, I think she's in on a plan at the end with McPherson. I, I don't know. It's really hard to tell. It gets pretty convoluted toward the end. And there's always like there's like a one minute scene of just her and Vincent Price sitting in that car in the rain, which I thought that was a pretty like in the day that was probably very impressive. Like that looked like mm-hmm. a really realistic modern rain scene that i i like i can't remember seeing in many scenes fat like it was like just like and and you know the idea they're having this intimate conversation and no one could possibly uh intrude on because the rain is loud and there's no like i I thought that some of that stuff was visually striking Mm -hmm. um some of the outdoor set work 
Uh, but yeah, like it's it's just kind of it kind of made her wishy washy. In fact, that that outdoor scene, like I thought it might possibly be the set that Gene Kelly stomped around on and singing in the rain. Huh. A lot of those doorsteps and lantern posts looked exactly the same. I was unable to confirm or deny that in my research, though. <laughs> so it probably means it wasn't because yeah, people thing, wouldn't know. Laura's got an insanely high reputation amongst people. Like, it hmm. didn't make the AFI Top 100, but it was nominated for it. Roger Ebert gave it a perfect four stars, included it in his list of great movies. Uh, it was enshrined in the National Archives as a particularly noteworthy piece of artwork and film. Um, and what's weird about that is I feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like I got an AFI Top 100 bias because I did you know, way back when set down and make a concerted effort to try to see as many of those as possible. So like I'm only favor, I'm only comparing it unfavorably to other movies of its era that were doing the same thing, perhaps better mm-hmm. like the Hitchcock films, the, the Humphrey Bogart stuff uh, just yeah. seemed like it is a lot of the same ideas and concepts, um, but better. And also I guess the other thing this thing is noted for is its uh, theme song. Uh, like over 500 people have recovered or recorded covers of this jazz, just jazz piece, including Frank Sinatra. Um, and it was like, insa- is like insanely popular. Uh, but like, I'm not a big jazz fan, so I didn't get that either. Like if I was talking about this yeah. haunting theme and all this, and I'm like, I even listened to a couple different versions while I was waiting for you to edit the last podcast to get to this. Cause I'm like I'm trying to get into this. I'm really trying, <laughs> but I'm like, it's just. It sounds like, you know, kind of big, big band jazz. It doesn't sound haunting at all to me. It actually sounds kind of jaunty. Uh, and that, that kind of brings me to one of my other, you know, contemporary 2018 criticisms. Uh-huh. Uh, is I, I felt like the music cues were used differently back then, and I'm not equipped to quite understand what they're doing. Because uh, there are scenes, you know, where the cop is looking around, the detective's looking around Laura's house, and the music is swelling and falling and swelling and falling. And I don't actually know why. And it's not really tied to the actions on the screen as much as I can tell. Uh, there, there are moments where it is, but they, they do this ebb and flow of the music that I simply don't understand from a 2018 it, perspective. It, I wonder if that's still transition from the silent movie phase where it's like you just had to have wall-to-wall sound because be. you didn't have anything else. Uh, yeah. You had to keep the momentum between the title cards. Because I, I, th- I, I noticed the same thing. What's amazing about Roger Ebert's review, if you read it, and I encourage everyone to do so because he's a brilliant man, is like his review reads negative because he lists everything that's wrong with the movie. And he even says like the brilliant score, which underpins, and he like says parenthetically, and I mean really underpins in some places – kind of like he's throwing shade like he's, huh. he's always like throws out a thing of praise and then he throws a peek as a shade and like it reads like a two and a half star review but it's a four star perfect great movie review and he says all the stuff that a lot of stuff that we're talking about like the pro- problems of the primary characters the coincidences the twists and turns the 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 final kind of reveal of the the villain um and how kind of arbitrary uh you know because like that's the other thing is going into that very final scene it could have easily been anyone yeah. in the room. It could have been, and they and they have. There's like a, some other contrived stuff. Like Lidecker goes in like less than an hour. Prep throws a hey everybody, Laura's back and she's a live party, just to have an excuse for everyone to be in the room. And also like 
all these characters are just tagging along with the detective in his investigation. Like, who yeah. the fuck lets that? I mean, the one guy's a journalist, so maybe, but everybody else, like, get the fuck out of the room. I'm investigating here. Right. But, like, yeah, like, it, it's it's easy to see. The, like I said, I, I can see the charms, too, but, like, mm-hmm. uh, to me, it wasn't, uh, it, it certainly wasn't a four-star what I'd call great movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I do, like I said, this movie did not bore me to tears. Um, I actually, one so ha, like I halfway enjoyed watching this movie. Right, it, it it didn't thrill me like a a modern movie would, but I didn't see it as a particularly bad uh, film, even by some, modern standards. Oh, there's some dialogue I liked, like towards the end of the movie, where McPherson's convinced that Vincent Price hasn't killed Laura. And he makes a comment about, yeah, it's just too bad you weren't the one to answer the door because he's like, there's nothing wrong with Vincent Price. He's just kind of a uh-huh. kind of a, just kind of like a sleazy opportunist, and he just like drops like 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 crouches down and just punches him right in the gut. Uh-huh. And like Vincent Price is so f- tall, it's almost like you right to, like straight to the balls, but it's just like so sudden. It's like, yeah, pal, too bad you didn't get your head blown off. Kaplow! <laughs> like I thought that was kind of a little Sam Spadish, uh, uh-huh. and I, I was like, I wish I gotten like three or four more scenes of him doing something like crazy like that. Um, but yeah, I- like coming into that last thing, it's just, it's just like I felt like anybody could be the ba- the the bad guy. Um, mm-hmm. So. I don't know. It, it, it ultimately the it, it felt kind of arbitrary. Uh, which which guy which guy it was? I mean, I got a lot of other like we we kind of talked about the big stuff, but I got a lot of other just like comments about the movie. Like you All you right. were talking about some of the quotes. One of the quotes that I actually really liked uh, mm-hmm. that kind of perfectly played on who Waldo is is when they're talking about him essentially not having any compunction with the things he's doing uh he says i should be sincerely sorry to see my neighbor's children devoured by wolves which is like the minimum acceptable level of of sympathy to be a human being i think yeah yeah uh so i thought that was really good and then apparently this guy i okay so i get it this guy is at the top of his game right he's a journalist uh who is world-renowned for his writing uh it's 1944 so i'm sure the the journalism industry was much stronger than it is now sure 1944 this guy is making 50 cents per word he says Mm -hmm. 50 cents per word he's probably a billionaire (laughs) like i I mean yeah he's got like i i because the other thing is he's got that very educated like i my imagination is he's actually from kind of old money you okay. know, because he yeah. afforded, he's able to afford an Ivy League degree to get him that accent and to get him the clothes and the position to become like you know a classic born on third base. Thought he hit a triple, yeah. But yeah, like you're supposed to understand that like he's traveling amongst his his kind of his betters, I guess. Yeah, I just couldn't believe what he was making. Mm-hmm. Uh, people struggle to make fifty cents a word today. Fifty cents a word. That's yeah. pretty pretty good for an eight hundred word column. That's not 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 bad work. But the other thing is like he also did radio because I also thought, what did you think about the fact that he's like, okay, everybody, listen to my last radio thing. Mm-hmm. When he walked out the door, certainly when he recorded the thing, he didn't know that he was going to shoot Laura in the face. But like, it's the perfect thing to shoot someone in the face to, right. like a spurned lover kind of thing. Uh-huh. Like, I wonder how he intended that to to land. I couldn't tell you. I don't, I don't on, know. On a second watch, maybe, but yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like, if do you, th- do you think if he, 
I don't know. Like, if he hadn't been able to run Vincent Price off, would he have tried to shoot Laura in the face again? I don't know why he wouldn't, because he got away with it this time. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Anyway, what you said, you had some other things? Yeah, the, the other thing I noted is how just fucked up it is uh, what Vincent Price does to this other woman who's chasing him, right? <laughs> he he decides, okay, I don't want anything to do with you. I actually want Laura instead. Right. Uh, he takes the woman to Laura's house uh his fiance's house in order to tell her that he doesn't love her and that they're going that he's gonna marry laura how fucked up is that pretty fucked up like (laughs) this is this is the place where uh oh yeah by the way we had our first kiss right there on that couch where you're sitting uh that's the thing that really convinced me that i loved laura and i don't want you so goodbye Yeah, and the other thing about, like, the older woman he was shacked up with, you know, at, at the par- her comeback party, she's, like, throwing herself at him and be like, oh, you know, forget about that, Laura. She's nothing but trouble. And and he's just so oblivious. He's like, yeah, but, you know, Laura needs me. And, like, oh, she's like, oh, she's like I'm going to bring Laura a drink. Oh, I could use a drink. Okay, here's a cup. Like, he's just so fucking oblivious. And she's like, mm-hmm. I understand, is, like, kind of his bankroll. Like, you got to keep that bun buttered a little bit, Vincent Price, don't you? But... Yeah, Laura is also super rich too, so I guess it's more of like he feels like he's one of those monkeys that's got his his, his hand on another uh, another branch, so he can let go of the other one. Uh, but he is like surprisingly like brutal and callous treatment of this uh, this older lady. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it did feel weird should, to my modern eyes the the uh, nature of dating back then. Um, mm. It's very different than it is now, right? I feel like you don't get into a relationship now and be on the cusp of marriage and have to break it off with other people. Right. Uh, you, you kind of like do your dating, you figure out who you might have a long-term thing with, mm-hmm. you get into a more serious relationship and break it off then. And then, you know, a year, whatever down the road, you say, okay, let's get married. And there's nobody to break it off with that back then. It seemed like, you know, you date a whole bunch of people right up until the very moment you're ready to get married to somebody i have huh you you really think so what what's your evidence that you date a whole bunch of people because like i think vincent price is kind of uh well he's dating slightly disreputable right yeah but i don't think for the for that reason i don't think he Uh, was disreputable because he was dating multiple people i think it's because of his his loss of his money and he was just uh an outcast in the social circles for that hmm. Yeah, I thought that, like, because, like, I mean, this is a lot of Downton Abbey stuff, but, like, you know, this socialite circle, you had a woman's coming out party, I forget what they call that, where she's presented as, like, okay, you can start dating my daughter now. Yeah. And then, like, you'd get suitors that would come calling, and your father and mother would essentially reject or promote those based on the suitability of the match, and then... Yeah, like I didn't, I didn't think. I guess I didn't get the same uh, flavor hmm. that you did about like the fact that people would like essentially hop around up until they get they they get engaged, and I don't know that that the engaged hmm. is just kind of like serious dating. Yeah, it seemed like it to me, but uh. I don't know. Not not equipped to to talk about that time right. period, I guess. Right. Uh, what else you got? Uh, that's probably about it. All right. Uh, the other charm of the movie is because you said like you didn't get bored, and I agree. Is that like the movie does not overstay its welcome? Mm-hmm. Like it's like just a shade over or under ninety minutes. So, and there's that easily enough plot to fill that time. So, and 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 like as soon as the film resolves, it's fucking over. 
Like we've talked about, like there's been several movies of late where we felt like uh, have outstayed its climax. Not this movie, man. This movie, as yeah. soon as it's done, it's 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 uh, time to roll credits or show the credit screen or whatever they do. Uh, so like that's another part. Like you know, if this was a two and a half hour movie, it would have been a lot a lot tougher of a slog to get through. But mm-hmm. as it is, I thought it was interesting to compare it. Like the things that. Like like how quickly that's the thing that's impressed me. How quickly things changed between like 1940 and 44 in terms of filmmaking, yeah. and how like you can see again the transitions and and the the more natural performances, and also how like these this guy in Hollywood because you know Hollywood's always been more accepting about you know non-binary and non you know default settings that for, for of everybody. Uh, like, like that this guy's playing with these stereotypes, but stuff that like maybe the American audience themselves wouldn't like, it's kind of interesting to see how you'd present like this kind of like closeted gay character or campy gay character, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of hint at that without pissing audiences off. Um, I, I mean, know, su- like such a, I think is, such a light what? hint that honestly, I didn't even pick up on that. Like, yeah, I, I get that he might, he was like a fancy lad, but I didn't, right. I didn't really understand that he was gay, but maybe, well, maybe, that, maybe like it's, in the I'm trying of the to time. make a little bit too too much of that, but I I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting to see. To me, like even when these old movies are not like page turners or pulse pounders, which they very rarely are, mm-hmm. uh, it's still really interesting to see the technology, not just from like the hardware and so- the standpoint, but like the technology in terms of telling a story and realizing, oh shit, this is a camera. We can do so many things with it. We can do all these different perspectives, and from an editing standpoint, and from a dialogue and structure standpoint, it's so cool to see the, the like you know the evolutionary history from this stuff to the stuff that we have now a days, mm-hmm. uh, where film noir can be robots hunting each other down in the streets of a polluted LA city. Like there's like it's it's completely different kind, but you can still see that spiritual link all the way through them. So uh that's that's our thoughts on laura thank you sarah for commissioning this podcast i apologize profusely just like i have tried to do with all the commissioners that it's taken us this long to to clear out our queue and get to your project uh but thanks a lot for your support of bald move thanks a lot for having us uh, check out this uh uh meaningful and impactful piece of hollywood history we'll be back with the next commission podcast i think it's john carpenter's the thing yep is the thing we're doing next. We'll be back with that uh, the next time. And until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you later.